0: Hey there, friends. This is Pastor Paul Carter from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia and the host of the End of the Word podcast, welcoming you back to another and our final episode of Going Deeper Online. So glad to be joined today by three of my favorite Bible readers. Uh, I've got uh, Pastor Mark Bertrand uh, down in, at Walsh Baptist Church in Simcoe, Ontario. Got uh, Pastor Stephen Bray as far east as you can go, uh, St. John's, Newfoundland. I suppose you could go further, just as far as east as you can go without flying or swimming. Uh, And then uh, also we've got Dr. Wyatt Graham from uh, TGC Canada. So welcome to all of you. Thanks so much for being with us today.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: All right. Well, I want to jump right into it. In our first column of readings uh, this week, we were in Exodus chapters 2 to 8 which uh, the the early chapters anyway, give us sort of the backstory uh, that leads up to the main drama of the text. The main drama of Exodus obviously has to do with God's great work of redemption and drawing his people out of slavery, and then turning this ragtag group of uh, released slaves into a nation with a law and a covenant and an intimate connection to God and a ministry. But in these early chapters, uh, we have, as I said, some, some backstory. We get a little bit of Moses' story. And um, we have a, a wonderful encounter that, that Moses had in his life with God, um, speaking, of course, about the story of the burning bush. Uh, this is where God introduces himself to Moses in a more intimate way. Uh, this is where God uh, introduces himself as Yahweh, or I am that I am. So, Wyatt, explain that to our first-time Bible readers, uh, explain the significance maybe of that title, I Am That I Am, Yahweh, what's the connection there? And then also maybe give a little introduction to the person who's not really used to the Bible, uh, help them understand why sometimes that is translated actually as the Lord with all capital letters. And then other times you get Lord with just capital L and then small O-R-D. What We understand that because we've been reading the Bible for years and years and years. But what if somebody's just starting out? help them to wrap their heads around all that?
2: Right. So, so what I'll do, I'll first talk about the meaning of the name, and then I'll get to the English translation. So in Exodus 3.14, God calls himself I am who I am. It's a verb, like in English, I am. The noun in Hebrew and the verb I am who I am, so the noun Yahweh and the verb I am who I, who I am look very similar. So probably the name Yahweh means something like I am who I am. So that's the kind of basic connection there. I'll make that more clear in a moment. That might be like, what's Yahweh even, right? But we'll, we'll get to that in a sec. So what does it actually mean in context? I think there's probably two major implications. In the book of Exodus, God is who he is, and you see who he is through the 10 plagues. He uh, is faithful. He rescues Israel, destroys Israel. No Egyptian God can stand a chance against him. I mean, they're false gods, but you know what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. He's the one who uh, rescues his people and creates a covenant with him. That's who God is. You see him through that. I think the other implication is that there's not really a way to like, name God perfectly. Like You can't just call him, he's righteous or he's holy. There's right. so many things you can say about God. He's infinite. But when you say I am who I am, it kind of opens it up that there's, there's, there's nothing like me. There's no way to perfectly describe me. I just am. And I think that's useful because our God is not like any kind of created thing in this world. He's not like a a lion that's created or a God of the Egyptians. He is who he is. You can't say everything possible about him because he's so great, so profound and so deep. So that's the God that we serve. He's not Ra, the Egyptian God. He just is who he is. Mm -hmm. So the implications are you see who he is in the story, but you also can't really define him because he's infinite and great and majestic
0: so let me pause you there i know you're going to talk about translation stuff but i just want to make sure people have got have grabbed that because that's really good so he is first of all he is who he is meaning uh he is beyond our ability to define which is you know connected to the the commandment about idolatry anytime we try to make god smaller or give him uh you know dimensions and a beginning and an end that's idolatry so he is he is he is knowable but knowable uh through what he says and what he does Um, But we will never know God exhaustively. Uh, We will only know him in terms of how he reveals himself in scripture and in his actions and climactically in Christ. Okay, so good. I want people to hear that. Now, walk us through the whole weirdness around how we render that in the English Bible.
2: Yeah, so in the English Bible, you'll see the word Lord spelled in two ways. Lord with all capital letters or Lord with only the first letter capitalized. Well, those are English translations of two Hebrew words. Well, maybe more, but typically two. If it's all capital letters in English, that's translating the proper name Yahweh. If it's only with one capital letter at the beginning, it's probably translating Adonai, which is a word that just means Lord. Mm-hmm. So when, it, when it's all capital, it means Yahweh. When there's only one capital, it means Adonai or just Lord. So why that's do we the way do that? We tra-
0: that's, I mean, that's, that's super confusing. I mean, we, we all learned that in seminary.
2: Uh, why in the world are we doing this? Well, without diving into the weeds too deep, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a tradition of protecting the name of God that you didn't want to read it out loud or say it improperly. So instead of saying it out loud, you would use um, a different pronunciation of the name. So this is done in Hebrew. when it was translate, When the Old Testament from Hebrew was translated into Greek, The translators translated all of the name Yahweh into the Greek word Lord. Therefore, in English, we just followed that translation pattern. My personal opinion is, as long as we're respectful, we certainly should use the name Yahweh because God revealed it to us. And I don't think we need to be overly protective. So I'm okay with the word Yahweh. But understandably, there's been a, a pious tradition of people wanting to protect the misuse of God's name. And it goes back
0: to the just just to be clear. When you talk about this pious tradition, this is a Jewish tradition that Christians more or less adopted out of respect for for uh, Jewish believers and Jewish people generally. Don't take this, but have never actually really been comfortable with, and have never been uniform. So, uh, some of the older translations, for example, render the divine name as Jehovah, Um, and uh, Jehovah and Yahweh are the same. They're just uh, different different vocalizations or different verb uh, putting different vowel points in. That's it. Um, But then other translations do not. So for example, the CSV, the Christian standard or CSB or whatever it is, they leave Yahweh in and uh, but the ESV takes it out and puts in Lord. And Bible scholars are kind of divided as to whether we should still do this.
2: Is Is that a decent summary? Decent summary. But let me give you one really cool insight The Greek New Testament cites the Greek Old Testament. And a lot of times Jesus is called Lord. A lot of times it's quoting the Old Testament and Jesus gets the name of Adonai and Yahweh associated with him. Yeah. This is a way that Christians could tell that Jesus was divine. (laughs) It's very, it's more straightforward because of this fact (laughs) than we sometimes give it credence to. Yeah. So he's Lord, and this is the name that was revealed uh, that we should trust in and believe in and Remember, just an Exodus, really briefly before I stop, Exodus 4.31, the Israelites believed in the Lord. Exodus 14.31, they believed in the Lord and Moses. Where's to trust in this name of, with God's promises. The whole Exodus narrative is centered around trusting in who God is. I mean, Abraham in Genesis 15 was justified by faith, essentially, by trusting the promise of God. It's the same for the Israelites here. And we're to trust in the name of God and the promise of God and who he is. I am who I am, magisterial, or majestic rather, but also as revealed in scripture. It's so a both end. We note him truly, if not exhaustively. Okay, that's my summary.
0: Nice. Any, any of you guys want to jump in on that, pro or con? I know, for example, probably the, the <laughs> Old Testament. Well, I'm not con against against the, the identity kind of, of the Lord. I'm actually
3: against that. <laughs> yeah, no, no.
0: <laughs> but against this habit of obscuring the name of God, um, you know, with, with these capitalized letters. Uh, or J. Alec Machir is probably the scholar that I'm familiar with who, who is irritated by it the most. Um, he, he, in his commentaries, uh, always renders it as, as Yahweh. <laughs> um, others, you know, feel the other way. But curious, just if a Bible reader is listening in, they'd, they'd love to hear your thoughts. What are your thoughts?
1: Well I just think for us we, we again you guys have done a great job I think some of the tension is because of our Jewish friends right. um in histo- in history they wouldn't they would even ritually bathe before they printed this name out and they wouldn't do it with any of the the vowels they only did the consonants they yeah. this was a, and this was part of even what went into the whole kind of the legalism of the pharisa- pharisaical ways of things and this is why I think what we do is is good. It's it, it everything that Wyatt said, but there is a bit of a a Jewish tradition to this about how they approached the name of God, and and there they thought this was what set God apart from all other gods. You weren't flippant with His name. They they would have taken this as a real, you know, first commandment: Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Um, you know that type meaning of meaning. They
0: would consider that the first commandment,
1: right? Sorry, right. yes, I got you. yes so, yeah. So yeah, um, so there is a bit of a, a you know, a national ideology behind it for, for our Jewish friends. Yeah. But I do think that Christ, Christ was the game changer in the sense of um, giving us access yeah. to God as father. Yeah, And uh, I think that's the beauty. And I love what you guys said. He is knowable, but you'll never know him exhaustively. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I worry
0: we miss, we miss that by just translating it as Lord because Lord just in English just means master. Right. Right. And, and, uh, so I, I kind of like, I'm also of the school where I like to use big words and then just explain what they mean because otherwise you just end up dumbing everything down, right? Yeah, yeah. And I like it when people read a word they don't know because then they'll call you and you can talk and have a great conversation. So I'd love to see, I wish the ESV just left it as Yahweh so that people would call and say, what does Yahweh mean? And I could say, it means God is who he says he is and he That's is interesting, what he does Paul. and you will never know him exhaustively You bow down to his feet and worship. I'd like to have that conversation. Because I,
1: I have I have been using the CSB in all my divisions devotions. Yeah. And I could be easily persuaded to make it the translation of my church. Yeah, it is good. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. Good. Well let's move on. Uh just one more I want to hit in uh in Exodus so we can because and maybe I'm overreading this because of my own story. Mark, Mark and I are both gym club boys. And um I have a memory and I hope it's accurate. Now as the older I get, the more like four or five memories come together into one. So I I think this is a true memory as I'm sharing it. But when I was 12 years old, uh, we were encouraged to read through the Bible uh, from cover to cover. So it was my first attempt at doing so. I believe I was uh, maybe 11 or 12. It was uh, around that time. And I remember it was like my first crisis of faith coming across uh, all these references. There are there are 20 different references in the Exodus narrative to the state of Pharaoh's heart, the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. And in half of them, it sounds like God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. And the first two mentioned, I literally remember as a boy, I saw it, and I, by about the fourth mention of hardening hearts, I went, "Who is? what is happening here? And I went back to try to figure out who started this. Did, did God start or did Pharaoh start? Because that was very important to me. And, uh, and really wrestling with this, and, and, and I remember being very meticulous in identifying all of these and trying to figure out what went first and who went where. Uh, it's, it, it, it was a pretty big deal in my Bible reading journey as an 11-year-old or a 12-year-old. I don't, I don't know if everyone else had that experience, but mm. Exodus 4.21, this is the first of these 20 references. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So how in the world does that work? How How is that fair, you know, minister to an 11-year-old boy trying to figure out the Bible, and anyone else uh, having, a, having a similar crisis? Brother Mark, why don't you get us yeah. started with that?
3: Yeah, so uh, your, your uh, crisis of faith was mine as well. And what was really interesting to me is I remember as a boy growing up having one of my— um, uh, Sunday school teachers or a pastor say to me, well, yes, but Pharaoh hardened his heart first and then God confirmed the hardness of Pharaoh's heart by continuing to do it. And if you look at the text, that's not right. That is not right. Uh, God says twice before we ever have any reference to Pharaoh hardening his heart, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So I, I want to deal with this in, in two ways. One, I want to answer the question, why, why, why would God say that or, and why would God do that? And then I want to ask the question is, is God unjust? And, and I get some, some big gun help for that question, but uh, why would God do this? Uh, and, and this scripture bears this out. It doesn't have to come off the top of my head and I'll show you in a second. But uh, if God had sent Moses to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh had been like, all right, see you later. Um, a huge amount of our understanding of who God is and why in discussing what it is that I am, that I am talking about the 10 plagues, uh, so much of our understanding of who God is and so much of the story of who Israel is would be lost. I mean, the touchstone uh, of, of Israel's past becomes the, the Exodus and the plagues and the Passover and all of these things that are working out. And by hardening Pharaoh's heart, God gives himself the opportunity to display his power and to display his provision and to break really the back of the world's superpower and lead a a captive people out uh, through the, the shed blood of a Passover lamb, which has massive ramifications for the rest of the gospel story. So that's why God does it. It's in order to display his power and his glory. So then the question is, well, is God just and, and the answer is yes, God is just, but in the case of Pharaoh, he is not merciful to Pharaoh. But now understand this, you can't deserve mercy. nobody deserves mercy. You don't merit mercy or earn mercy. Mercy is always a gift that is given. so the the question when I try to help my congregation understand this uh, is um, what does God do here? Does God take Pharaoh, who has got a soft, tender, malleable heart, who has an inclination to goodness and righteousness, and who left to his own devices, would be more than willing to set at liberty this group of people? Well, this is the guy who is trying to wipe out the Israelites through slavery and commanding that their children be tossed into the river. He doesn't have a soft, tender, malleable heart. He's got the same sort of heart that every human being has. He's got a wicked heart, a depraved heart, a heart that is hard towards God already. And and all God does here is he doesn't do anything as far as mercy is concerned, as far as softening Pharaoh's heart. Um, He more or less confirms Pharaoh in his hardness. So that may be where the idea comes that Pharaoh hardened at first, but he doesn't. Uh, Pharaoh's heart is naturally hard. Uh, God confirms him in his hardness, and uh, Pharaoh is simply following what is the natural inclination. Here's what the Apostle Paul, I said I had a big gun. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 9 about this very uh, event and why it happens. Uh, This is Romans 9, 14. What shall we say then? on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills.
0: Yeah, so the main thing I, I'd want readers to hear there is uh, that it's not as though God made Pharaoh uh, unwilling to let the, the Israelites go. It's not as though Pharaoh well, was naturally inclined to, to be gracious and merciful, and then God, like an evil puppet master, made Pharaoh sin. Um, in fact Paul goes on in romans 9 to defend god from any suggestion yeah. that the exercise of his sovereignty isn't is in some way un, unjust or unfair uh, right and, and and that becomes paul's main concern in the passage um, but there's no indication that that Pharaoh was positively inclined and that god made him negatively inclined is that is that right absolutely yep and i've got a little quote from naam Sarna here is it, a Hebrew scholar, just to show that this is not just like Calvinistic Christian reading of the Old Testament. This is the way the Jews read it as well. Um, He said, uh, Nahum Sarna, for example, writes, it is to be noted that in the first five plagues, Pharaoh's obduracy is self-willed. It is only thereafter that it is attributed to divine causality. So Sarna makes the point that actually in the first two references in Exodus, God doesn't say I am right now hard, hardening Pharaoh's heart. He, he's basically just saying, I'm going to author this, as you say, Mark, I'm going to author this episode so that it perfectly prefigures Christ. Now, Nahum Sarna is not saying that, but uh, that's what God, God is saying to, to, to Moses. I'm going to author this so that it creates this, this giant narrative that you're talking about with the Passover, et cetera, But not in, a, not in such a way that he makes a good man bad just in such a way that he controls the timetable, absolutely. And then Sarna notes that in the first five plagues, each time the plagues happened, it just said that Pharaoh hardened his heart. It's only later when God was extending it to prove his glory and to to finish the drama, as it were, that that God acted directly. Hmm. So, yeah, I think that's, that for me, like I said, that was like a two-year Bible reading crisis. Uh, So, and you've just solved it, hopefully, in uh, three minutes for all our listeners. Either of you guys uh, at the bottom of my screen want to chime in on that?
1: I think it's important, though, for your first-time readers and people not to get discouraged that they, too, will probably experience this tension of trying to understand, and that God is not irritable or put off, or they're not weird because they're doing that. I would just encourage people to probably the road that Mark, you, and Paul walked down, that I walked down. It's funny. I had the reverse crisis of faith. Somebody preached a sermon about Romans 9, yeah. and I was reading that going like, that's... I." Like it just says it, which then drove me back to Exodus again, and where I really paid attention to the sequence of events. But I think that for readers that are new to the Bible or new to Christianity and are trying to figure out God, it's just to always ask yourself, um, what do you mean by sovereignty? God's power, his control, all these things. Because the moment you put human perspectives or conditions on it, you're going to run into all kinds of potholes. Yeah. And 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 again, interestingly, for the Calvinistic thing, I find it fascinating because in my pastoral career, people that butt up against this, and they just don't want to. It's almost like they're sympathetic to Pharaoh, and they're like, "No, nah, Pharaoh got a raw deal." And then I immediately say, "So what about Hitler?" And that's a little bit closer to home. And then I was like, "No, no, no, Hitler was. It's good if God hardened his heart." And, and it's almost like the distance has get made Pharaoh somehow because we want to feed in our own human need for what we think is fairness and all these types of things and we've we've somehow turned Pharaoh into this sympathetic character this This guy was a despot, a dictator who gleefully was willing to kill men, women, and children. Um, and God just gave him over I think in a, in, a, in a Romans one way yeah to the desires and passions of his own heart
0: yeah. that's, I think that's maybe. Helpful yeah i mean it's it almost when you when you read romans one and then you read this story backwards through romans one right, right? Mm-hmm. um it all of a sudden it looks like pharaoh is on a spiral of hardening a downward spiral of, of hardening and god just simply does not rescue him from that until the whole story has been told Yeah, you know, and, <laughs> and when did... i say until i don't mean that he does at the end <laughs> i just mean he, he just he does not arrest pharaoh at any moment from that spiral
2: is he's a Romans one. God gives him over character. I think everything that's been said has been really helpful. The one thing that I would just add really just because there could be an accidental conclusion that we're somehow pushing into the side of what is called fatalism. Yeah. Nothing really, no one's saying that. The other kind of side you can fall into is complete freedom I can fly because I want to. Well, no, you can't. <laughs> yeah. But there's there's sort of a middle ground here. And in the kind of reformed way of thinking, you would say something like, human choice is contingent on God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty does not remove human choice, right. but in fact relies upon it to be actually free. Yeah. So there's there's, and we see this in Exodus. You mentioned there's five occurrences where God hardens Pharaoh's heart and then five occurrences where Pharaoh hardens his own heart. There is a sort of, uh, contingent causality to use fancy words no. all I'm trying to say is this it's not fatalistic Right. your choices matter but God is in control no. <laughs> so you're, you're going to meet
0: this, providence.
2: this
0: if you're a bible reader uh, this That's is the right. first time you meet it this how does uh, human responsibility and God's sovereignty go together this is, this is where that conversation will begin in your mind this conversation began for me as an 11 or 12 year old <laughs> it, it actually didn't resolve until I was about 32 <laughs> yeah. um, I, I was constantly trying to trying to work this this through. You're going to meet it again in the story of David's census, uh, right? Where it, you know, on the one hand, it's presented as something stupid David did. On the other hand, uh, God allows the devil to in, incite it in David's life. And so, you know, how does this work? And so, this is a tension you're going to meet again and again in the scriptures. Go ahead, Mark. You were you
3: raised? Well, it. I think one of the key things that comes up in this passage that the Bible reader has got to wrap their mind around is our natural inclination as sinful human beings as products of the fall is constantly to think that God is somehow in our debt or that God owes something to us because we are alive. And that's not true. Um, I mean, that's, that's what I hear so often with people you know that's not fair to Pharaoh, and you go, "What does God owe to Pharaoh?" God owes nothing, and this is the answer. When you get to now, I'm opening a can of worms for you, Paul. But when you get to the question of what about, the we'll people, edit this out. <laughs> what about the what about the people who have never heard? You know, uh is God fair to? And the, I mean, that's there's a bigger issue there. But the issue of God's fairness is is God gives justice to all and every single person is born dead in trespasses and trespasses in sin you know it's god who gives mercy but he gives it to whom he wills for his own purposes not because we deserve it and that goes back to the first thing we we're talking about yahweh i mean right? that's actually one of the things
0: god says when he explains his name to moses he's like yeah i i show mercy to whom i show mercy i have compassion that's part of who i am brother um you know i i have steadfast love for many uh, yes, it's a moral universe. Sins of the father visit on the children, and I show mercy. And uh, you don't understand that because it's hidden away in that part of me that is uh, beyond your grasp. But watch me, and and you'll know Yahweh. Uh, that's that's literally what what God says in Exodus thirty four. So yeah, good. And again, in Romans nine, Paul Paul quotes that very thing. So yeah, this, I mean, this is a huge one. And uh, like I said, if you're a Bible reader, there are certain predictable. I don't want to call them crises, but challenges you'll have to work through, uh, and and this is one of them, and and I, I want to be careful to say that it's not like if you read this story ten times you'll finally figure out how God's sovereignty <laughs> and human responsibility go together. They're actually just presented side by side in the text without explanation, such yes. that both are real. Pharaoh's making real choices for which he receives justice, and 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 God is superintending the entire process to bring out the outcome He desires. So. Uh, both of those are are there. Both those are real,
1: Paul. I don't know if it's my cop out answer, but Spurgeon is my favorite guy on this. Yeah, that the you know the free will of man and the sovereignty of God are the two ways, uh, two sides of a railway track, and they don't converge until the throne room of God.
3: Mm. Uh, yeah,
1: that's well said. You know, yeah. I, I, that's there that's are some my mysteries. There is a tension, tension there. Yes. Yeah, tension.
0: Yeah. Uh, what's the word? Uh, J I Packer uses the word antimony. Is that right? Yeah, it's J I yes, Packer. It is. That yeah, uses it. yeah, right. yeah. That's good too. Uh, just just as a, a way of saying it's. Two things can be true simultaneously, even if we're not sure how they're true. I wanted to get a railway thing in there, too, for Mark. Yeah, no, that works. Yeah, good. <laughs> good, good, good. Thank you for that. All right. Well, in our second column of Old Testament readings, we were working through Job uh, 19 to 26. And uh, I want to start, actually, with something that, that's right at the start of that process, uh, right in Job 19. Uh, Job 19, 25 to 26 is often considered the theological high watermark of the middle section of the book, the speeches—it's uh, a pretty spectacular statement, given where it comes in the biblical canon. Uh, you're not going to hear an explicit statement like this about, you know, the afterlife, and uh, un- until Daniel. Um, so this is very early on in the canon, and and then also it's just a remarkably faithful statement for a guy going through what Job is going through, uh, which which might be the point. So here's what Job says. He says, "For I know that my redeemer lives." And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. That's pretty remarkable. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword for wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know there is a judgment. Francis Anderson provides a really useful little breakdown, a little summary of the speech. He says in this speech, Job's audacious faith reaches its climax. in the famous words, I know that my redeemer lives. Verse 25, he leaps to this height from a state of despair caused by the reproaches of his friends, verses two to six, his devastation by God, verses seven to 12, and his sense of utter forsakenness, verses 13 to 22, his certainty of final vindication, verses 23 to 29, shines all the more brightly against this dark background, closed quote. So that's that's the point. That's why this is such a remarkable statement. Job reaches this climax, this, this mountain peak, from the absolute nadir, from the absolute bottom of the valley, from a place of utter devastation, from a place of utter rejection, from a place of utter aloneness, Job, Job reaches to the absolute summit of Old Testament faith. And I guess the question is, maybe, is that really the only way it could be done? um, th- there's no gradual ascent here that, that in essence, you have to be pressed down. You have to be destroyed in order to be raised up. Is, is that what we're supposed to get out of this? Is that maybe one of the practical pastoral takeaways? So pastor Stephen, do you want to take a first stab at that?
1: Yeah again I just you know I love I just love Job I I I love it so so much because I love the rawness of it the 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 just the and even kind of the struggle that Job's having in this he, he has it's the most amazing of statements but then he just articulates this sense of despair and forsakenness the short answer is can you only do it in a point of despair I I think you know being somewhat cavalier is no our Bible is full of different types of people discovering the riches of Christ, the depths, the heights the, the, of God's power and display. I mean, Paul, again, we're going to him at, at the end of Romans 11, just erupts in this praise. Ephesians are these filled prayers of just glorious, you know, greatness, the height, the depth, the majesty of God, and doesn't seem to be coming from him being in this case of, of utter despair. David himself in Psalm 8. You know, he was out simply looking at creation and the stars, and he was overwhelmed at the bigness, the power, and the greatness of God. So I do think, and then Moses, Moses on Mount Sinai, who comes down and his face is glowing because um, he's seen just the backside of the Shekinah glory of God. So I think there are examples of Scripture where men and women in in the zenith of praise discover things about God's size, His grandeur, His power, and all of those types of things. Having said all that, I do think, though, that our grasp of the power of the gospel, our understanding of being able to personally apply God's presence, is felt most in our times of distress. Hmm. Because that's when you need, that's when you are most urgent to say, I need the power of God. I need the gospel. I'm I'm doing this journey to the cross with Paul David Tripp's new book on Lent. And the last couple of days, he's brought out the idea of you know the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because they're going to be comforted. Yeah. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because they're going to inherit the kingdom. And so the same David that marveled at creation in Psalm 8 is the same one that in Psalm 18, after rehearsing, All of the trials he's been through then says, I know that the Lord is my rock and my redeemer and my, my, my savior, the one that I can run to and so on and so forth. And Paul, who can burst into praise in Romans 11 and Ephesians two and three is the same one. And in second Corinthians says, look, I, I went to God three times and said, I I need you to take this from me. And -hmm. God's answer was no, when you're weak, then I'm strong. So I don't think it's about you can't discover the bigness, the greatness of God's and these zenith experiences of life Mm -hmm. as it is your personal application. And and I think one of the other the primary other passage for me, you know, you've got Job there in 19 is Psalm 23. When David says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because thou art with me. Now, to sum it up, and then I'd love to know what the other guys think. Ultimately, Job looks to the future. I know I shall see God in my flesh. He almost has this moment of clarity where he puts his suffering in perspective, but then his suffering kind of overtakes him again. And for us, the New Testament Christian and our people that are reading through this, you're going to come to that glorious chapter in Revelation when john tells us he saw the holy city and god's going to make everything right and there will be no more tears no more crying no more death no more pain because god is going to make it the way it's supposed to be and that's how we look forward as we both suffer i think and praise
0: that's good yeah you guys want to jump in on that or disagree like i did later earlier with wyatt
3: (laughs) (laughs) i have some cons to that actually (laughs) I'm opposed to Job 19. <laughs> well, I, I'll, say, I'll say this. Um, scripture bears out the fact that if you belong to Christ, you will suffer. And that, yeah. that suffering is a part of the process of being prepared to share in his glory. Mm-hmm. That if we belong to Christ, Romans 8 says, uh, we will share in his sufferings. And we will also share in his glory. We, we're be, we've been made heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. But I, I just preached on this two weeks ago, I think, on, on sharing Christ's suffering. Um, that can create a crisis of faith if you're not right now suffering. You go, am I doing something wrong? Am I supposed to be suffering? Things seem to be going pretty smoothly for me right now. And, and the Council of Scripture would say, don't go out there and try to bring suffering down on your head there will be times when you, Paul says in Philippians 4.12, I know how to abound and I know how to be in need. There will be both in your life. The question is, uh, am, I, am I unwilling to suffer or will suffering drive me away from Christ? If that's the case, you, you've got reason to be concerned about the reality of your faith. But if you say, I, I'm willing to suffer, nobody says, hey, sign me up for a Job-like experience. But you will have experiences in your Christian life where you will be <laughs> crushed where you will be broken down where you will suffer where you will be afflicted jesus says it paul says it peter says it and and scripture bears it out you will suffer if you're a christian at some point
2: just to add to what you're saying there's a story from the early 100s of a guy named quintus and he wants to suffer so he goes raw 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 and brings a ton of his friends to go before whatever the governor but once he's uh once he's there, he's like, oh, I don't actually want to suffer. So he you know, denies Christ or whatever he does, but has brought all his friends into suffering with him. So yeah. I, I would just say like, there, yeah, there's, we don't want to chase suffering, but yeah, it will sure. come. And the book of Job is utterly fascinating that it, that it comes. He's vindicated. There does seem to be some hints of the future here mm. that I think are fascinating. I don't think in the Old Testament they have a full picture of all what it might mean for the like 1 Corinthians 15 to be true. But there's hints everywhere. Like there's yeah. hope. They maybe don't have in progressive revelation the exact wording to say, you know, the corrupt will become incorrupt, the immortal become immortal, et cetera. But there's something here that I think is worth reflecting oh, on anyway.
0: Yeah, so I did my undergrad at a, at a university as opposed to a Bible school. So, um, you know, when I was taking biblical literature and, you know, Mesopotamian history and all that kind of stuff in my classics and religious studies undergrad, they were all extraordinarily liberal authors I was reading. So, you know, I, I remember being told that there is, there is no conception of the afterlife in the old Testament that um, they're just, you know, there's the odd statement that could be taken out of context, but that, 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 the concept of an afterlife is something that was basically second temple period during the intertestamental period as now bi like as a faith person who just reads the Bible on a regular basis. I don't know how in the world that gets said. Uh, it must be said by people who write about the Bible, but don't read the Bible. Mm. Right. Uh, because it is everywhere now. This is early, like as I said. That's so. Even evangelical scholars or, or you know, faithful uh, Bible scholars who who write about this say, this is so early. You're tempted to wonder if we're translating this right, uh, but I that makes me love it all the more. <laughs> like that, right. that to me is just like I think God just ministered to this brother. Like yep. it just gave him a, a glimpse of the far future so that he could endure the awful present, and and I just think that's how faith works.
1: Yeah, That's why for me, the whole thing about it in, in my flesh, it's not just, I'm going to see God yeah. in my flesh for Job to say that. Yeah, no I almost think it's like that Matthew 16 moment when Jesus tells Peter flesh and blood didn't tell you this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, somebody else did. That's right. Uh, yeah.
0: Uh, Calvin, obviously you, you guys heard me say this before. Calvin loved Job. I forget the number of sermons you preached on Job. It's, it's some huge number, like 187 or something like that. And uh, he, he became uh, very uh, comfortable with the phrase, the school of affliction uh, after his, his studies through Job. And uh, okay. I think it, the, one of the places that comes out of is Job 36, Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the major tics, takeaways of the books so God knows how to teach us, refine us. And sometimes, just because of who we are, We have to be pressed down low for these sorts of exalted revelations um, and insights. So very good. Uh, Before we leave Job, let's do this one quick if we can. Uh, But I want to do it just because it struck me this week as a good case study uh, as we were reading through Job. Uh, Job chapter 20 is like... uh, one of these chapters where I, I'm doing a new new Bible. You guys have heard me say this before. I I prepare journaling Bibles for each of my kids. I highlight them, make notes on them and stuff. Anyway, I'm working with a fresh one right now for my teenage daughter. And so it. I got the highlighter poised over the page on Job 20 going, do I highlight this for her or not? Like, I don't know. Uh, there's a sense in which everything that is said in Job chapter 20 could could be cut and pasted and dropped right into the book of Proverbs, right? Like so, this is Zophar, uh, one of Job's counselors, and he. This is what he says: Do you not know this from of old, since man was placed on the earth, that the exalting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment? Verses four and five. Then here's verse eighteen: He, God will get, or sorry, he, the wicked man will give back the fruit of his toil and will not swallow it down from the profit of his trading; he'll get no enjoyment. He, again, the wicked man, will flee from an iron weapon. A bronze arrow will strike him through. The possessions of his house, the wicked man, will be carried away, dragged off in a day of God's wrath. All that could be dropped right into the book of Proverbs. and you wouldn't bat an eye. Um, It's not true in the case of Job. Zophar is making the argument that because this is the way it works, that wicked people only prosper for a season, but then God orchestrates things to bring them down. The fact that Job was prosperous for a season and then, Experience calamity, is proof that Job is secretly a wicked man, which we know is not, not the case. So what in the world do you do with Job chapter 20? Do you highlight it? You could highlight 90% of the verses in that verse. I think our kids would profit from reading them, or would they? So deal with this as a case study. This is a great case study on the weirdness and wonder of the book of Job. Uh, so help me figure out panel uh what what you what, what would you do with this chapter if you were preparing a bible for your kids and then i'll go back and and make any changes i need to in the bible i'm preparing for mine
2: <laughs> i'll make a basic observation but i'll let you guys experienced pastors tease it out i think one of the reasons ecclesiastes and partially job are in the bible is to tell you proverbs are generally true but they're yeah. exceptions right so if you think proverbs are always 100 of the time true then you would be like this man judging Job. You're suffering. You're certainly a sinner. Yeah. But we know that's not always 100% true. It's often that if you're lazy, you'll have not a lot of money, but some lazy people get inheritance and are rich, right? Like that does happen sometimes. So I would say this is useful to know, to be wise, that while these are generally true, in the case of Job, it's an obvious exception. So we should be slow to judge, quick to hear, and so on you know yeah well said
1: and, and i i would just add to that as someone who did do this with his family and stuff the way i taught it because i love job so much was exactly the way that why just broke down but also the the idea of zophar is doing this and projecting it on somebody else he's not as as we far too quick to project it on himself yeah so you know we need to learn these axioms but he he is trying to say i gotcha job so again we're because in the new testament you know, we're told to examine ourselves, you know, Jesus in a sermon on the mount before right. you go trying to take specks out of somebody else's eye deal with the log in yours. Mm-hmm. And so you, are you being honest about these axioms in your life?
0: Let me, um, let me pause and make sure people are, make sure people are getting that. Cause I think that's brilliant. So you're saying, let's say you're Job, you're, you're a modern day Job. You you've got cancer, you've lost your job, your dog doesn't like you anymore. Like everything's gone wrong. You're a country song, uh, walking around. (laughs) What you're saying is that you should read that and, and, and reflect and pray as to whether God is revealing any hidden wickedness in you, but the people around you should not be pointing their fingers and saying, this is because of that, because then you could just end up as, as a
1: miserable counselor. Only God knows the heart. Absolutely. And I also think that's what James says, right? In James five, when he says, if you are suffering, call for the elders and I'm, people miss this. And if there is unconfessed sin, right, right, there but not there, be there's, there's not this blanket assumption that you're suffering because of sin. Right. So he, 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 James says, call your, your, your church family, your leaders around you, but have this discussion. And the elders aren't, aren't commanded to go in with the assumption you're suffering because of sin. Yeah, yeah, and and so I think that again, I, for me, what's always been helpful, I've tried to teach it to everybody, is is knowing the difference between corrective discipline and formative discipline. But I just think these axioms that so far is, is making are are good. I think the problem is, and where he's going to get rebuked at the end is, dude, you were so busy pointing this out to Job, did you ever bother to look in the mirror yourself? Yeah. Well, like, and he like, neglected to consider providence. Like, right. In essence, we
0: have to think about proverbs and providence side by right. side, because. Yeah. God was working a providential purpose in Job's life, and that's the comfort in this. If you're that person who's living the country song, if you're mm. you've got the cancer and you lost your job and your dog hates you, um, it may not be that there's hidden wickedness in your life. Do an inventory, but it, it could also just be God's dark providence.
1: Yeah, the one other just... thing I will add to this, sorry, sorry, White, is we need to be careful with with Job. The Bible doesn't say he was sinless. No. Mm-hmm.
0: No, it says he was blameless.
1: There's no such thing. I think this is why we struggle with this when we suffer is because I know that I sin. The problem I'm trying to deal with is if I'm not confessing my sin, I'm making excuses for my sin. I'm marinating in my sin. I'm hiding my sin. I'm deflecting my sin. That's going to evoke the loving, corrective discipline of an almighty God. But if I'm dealing with my sin as imperfect as I am, and I still suffer, I have to fight Satan whispering going, this is God. See, he's not as loving as you think. Look at him sticking it to you. And I actually think we miss this in Job, that this whole back and forth, I often wonder we get the one sided of Joe of Satan coming and saying to God, Job won't love you if we do this, this and this. I wonder how much Satan was whispering into Job's ear. God cannot love you, man. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. because I know when I'm suffering and I felt like I feel like I de- deal with my sin and bad things are I am most tempted to go, God, what gives?
0: yeah, and, and I think that's it's important for people to hear that too because i I would hate for somebody like Job is a great book for for clearing the path of bad pastoral counsel. meaning you read job and and you you repent a lot as a pastor because like, oh, I've said that. Oh, I have said that. And so it, it's it's a great little book of what not to do. But I think one of the other things it, it can do is help people who are suffering. Uh, because, you know, Job, Job did an inventory. He, many Half the speech section is him saying, no, I didn't do that. No, I didn't do that. Don't think that if you could just confess every sin you can think of, and maybe even a few you're not sure you actually did, that, that all your suffering will go away. Right, because um, you cannot twist God's arm, and there could be dark providence going on that you know nothing about. Uh, we can never manipulate God with just ad nauseum confession either. That's that's important to know.
2: A quick curiosity yeah. in the Lord's prayer, it says, uh, "Deliver us from the evil one and lead us yeah. not into trial or temptation." Yeah. Is this kind of an example of that? He, he's in a trial, and the evil one is in partly behind it. <laughs> I just—it's just, a curiosity. Sure.
0: Yeah. yeah, I think we should pray, Lord.
2: Uh, <laughs> please don't give me a job. Please don't make us today. like. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it just kind of yeah, popped in sure. my head there.
0: All right, in uh, moving into the New Testament, uh, in, in our first column of New Testament readings, we were doing Luke five to eleven, and uh, some some neat stories there—the calling of the disciples generally. And then it, there's it's like a zoom in on the the calling of of Levi or Matthew, the tax collector. We assume this zoom in is done to teach a particular principle. So Luke 5 29 to 32 says, and Levi made a, made him a great feast in his house. There was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So how does that work? I have heard this verse misappropriated and misused by Christians to justify all kinds of silly association. You know, I'm going down to the bar to, you know, establish a witness in the community and uh, cause Jesus ate and drank with sinners. So that's, that's, that's going to be my approach as well. Uh, and, and, and yet first 1 Corinthians 1533 says, do not be deceived bad company ruins good morals. So we seem to have something on either side of the road here. So panel, help me figure this out. Help our folks develop a good balance in terms of how they apply the principle that we're seeing here. What, what does this mean? And how does it look?
3: Uh, yeah. That's really the big issue.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Mark. You're leaning in.
3: Yeah. So, uh, you know, the the enemies of Jesus, the Pharisees, are the ones behind this, this accusation. Um I used to be a youth pastor, Paul, you used to be a youth pastor. You know, that these are the kind of things, you know, teenagers would come up with to try to get, yep. you know, permission. I'm, going to, to the, I'm, to I'm going to the
0: party. I'm just going to hold the beer and I'm going to tell everyone about Jesus.
3: Yeah. But uh, you, you know, the reality is, and I, I always used to say this to, to the kids in the youth group. Yeah. Jesus was in the midst of these things, Yeah, but you'll notice yeah. that none of the tax collectors or the sinners were the ones who were saying, Jesus is, just like us, Jesus, you know, those were the the Pharisees that said, look at this, this wretched, wicked kind of man. Uh, Jesus was distinctly different in those sorts of situations. And, uh, you know, he, he was a redemptive presence there uh, because he wasn't going to the prostitutes as a John goes to the prostitutes and he wasn't going to the parties as a drunkard goes to the parties. He went with the intent of reaching these people and distinctly different. So, I mean, um, I, I guess the question I ask myself, because I sometimes uh, go into situations, um, you know, uh, as a as a, you know, with my neighbors where your neighbor invites you over and says, hey, I'm having a party at my place. Do You yeah. want to come? And I go, uh, do I want to come? You know, am I being influenced by these people? Bad influence corrupts, you know, good com- or bad company corrupts. Yeah, or am I yeah. going with the intent and, and the design and w- with the capacity to influence and, and as a, a gospel witness? And, and when you answer that, I think you have the answer to whether or not you could go to that or should go to that.
0: Yeah, the key line, uh, you know, in terms of what you're saying there is that he's with them as a physician is with the sick, right? Yeah, uh, that's that's the metaphor that Jesus employs. So he wasn't, you know, just just playing bocce ball in the waiting room um he he was in there on on mission uh, but i do think it's easy to get this wrong both ways like I, interestingly i have repented in both directions on this principle over the course of my life um i think there were times when i was foolishly in places doing things all with the idea that oh i'm salt and light and it's like no i don't think you are i think you're just foolish And and you're you're being influenced, and I can hear a change in your language, and I can hear a change in your tone. So there was a need to repent of that. But then also, I'll be honest with you. Later in my Christian life, there was a little bit of just a, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want to even endure the appearance of evil. So I'm not going to go to that. And you're missing out on opportunities to build relationships with your neighbors. And and uh, so let's acknowledge this is a tricky one to get right. Either
1: of you brothers want to help us out on the bottom of the screen there. Well, I I was raised in this one, uh, you know, I was raised in a very independent Fundamental Baptist tradition. So this this whole passage was beat into my, mm-hmm. for the more reason you don't do things. Uh, but uh, but I you know as I grew up and I matured, I I, I got ma- meeting guys that would do this. I'm well, I met a guy who literally came to me here in Newfoundland and said, I go to the strip clubs to try <laughs> and convert yeah. the Johns, and and That's I'm like. Bad right and oh, and send, i was like send your mom on that this, mission right. don't you go <laughs> <He tried laughs> my mom can do that I'm <laughs> and i'm like dude the passage says matthew had jesus in his home yeah that's not right. to the local strip joint that's right i think one of the great places for what you guys are talking about when our readers read uh, matthew 21 When Jesus exerts his authority in the temple and the chief priests and the elders come and go, by what authority do you do this? And he gives the parable of the two sons, you know, the one he goes to and says, do this. And he says, no, I'm not doing it, but then repents and then goes and does it. And then the one who says, "Okay, I will do it and then does it. Right. And I love Matthew's version of this because it's Matthew, the tax collector, writing this. Mm -hmm. And how much joy it must have been for him to write him. And Jesus then said, you guys don't realize tax collectors and prostitutes will go into the kingdom before you. But the idea was because they're changed. Yeah like they're there, which is what Mark was, was getting into this idea of norm. Like, I don't get it. Some of the rationalities, we got to normalize Jesus. We got to normalize ourselves as Christians. So we fit into these bar dynamics. And so then everybody will get kind of buzzed up and then they'll start to really talk to us about Jesus. Well, look, my neighbor, uh, very similar to what Mark was saying, I invited him over a couple of times, but I, you know, and back and forth, but I would tell him, I'm inviting you over for barbecue. You don't have to not smoke because he was addicted to smoking. Sure, I said, you don't have to not smoke because you come to my place. But listen, dude, it, it is, you know, I'm going to say grace before it and everything else like that. Yeah. And when he got the nickname, he nicknamed me John the Baptist. He said, you know, oh, John the Baptist is inviting me over. And I was proud of that. I thought sure. that was the, yeah. the right influence that Mark, Mark is talking about. Yeah. The guy didn't think I was trying to lower myself, but he also didn't think I was better than him. Yeah. Right. And this is the tension. So, you know, gr- gr- growing up in a legalistic world, it was almost like we were telling sinners, clean yourselves up and then come to us and we'll tell you about Jesus. Yeah. Uh, and that's the accusation, I think, of the Pharisees. Yeah, well said. But but the but the overreaction by Christians of today is well, now I'm just going to normalize myself and I'll go in there and I'll just be like one in the crowd, and that wasn't Jesus wasn't one in the crowd. Jesus was the center of attention of the crowd, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, and and calling them all to change their lives radically.
0: Yeah. So yeah, well said. I, I, just, it's it's a perennial pastoral issue. So mm-hmm. you know, I don't think we could probably we probably couldn't overdo the amount of counsel because this is a, a tricky one. Why do you want to pop in?
2: I was just going to note to kind of expand on what Steve was saying is one way to think about this is we're called to freedom. So we've been set free, yeah. but that freedom looks like living by the spirit, love, joy, peace, thankfulness, thankfulness, and so on. So wherever you are, I mean, you're, you're not going to fit in and be normalized. If you're living by the spirit, you could be anywhere in the world, but you're going to be odd. If you're at a bar and not talking about girls the way everyone else is talking about girls sure. or not talking about sports or violence, like that's not going to be who you are. And Jesus lived by the Holy Spirit. There's something very unique and special about the kind of freedom that we have in Christ that makes you an oddball wherever you are. And I think makes you a doctor wherever you are. That's not to deny any of the wisdom that you guys gave. I mean, I don't go into a don't go into a strip club because why would you expose your <laughs> passions of the flesh? I mean, that's just silly. Right. But my point is to say if you're living by the spirit. Uh, yeah, I think you have freedom, man. You're going to be weird and you're not going you know, to give into the flesh, ideally. So. That's
1: a great point because I will tell you practically, right? Like uh, because of what I was raised, I struggled with my own conscience about ever going into a pub, ever doing this because was, it was totally beat into me. Thou shalt not. And I remember even going to a place like Boston Pizza once with a couple of unsaved people and a couple of Christians. And the main area was full, but there was seats available on what they call the bar side. And all oh, yeah. of all of the, the group with me wanted to go just get it, and it wasn't because they were looking to go to the bar. It was just a way to get in so we could have a meal. Right. But one of the guys with me was still from that independent, and he he just left. He just up and left. Hmm. And that was one of the first times I was like, okay, Steve, what what are you doing here now? Like you you didn't go with the intention. So that was one of the first times where I just said, okay, Lord, I've got to follow this through, and and I didn't feel like I had to be guilty or feel shame. Um, because there was no intention to go be one of the guys or be normal. It was, I was just dealing with life as it was dealt to me.
0: Yeah. To the pure, all right? things are pure. I mean, there's a sense right. in, in, yeah. Now, so one last thing on this, cause I'm just thinking of in my mind, I'm thinking who might be watching this right now. And I want to make sure that that we're helpful in six or seven different directions. So let's, let's say we've got somebody who's a recovering um, drug user who's come to Christ out of the drug, out of a culture where drug use was pretty common and um by the grace of God was, was lifted out of that. Now he or she is thinking, you know, I got a bunch of friends back there that, that need Jesus, that need this, this message in my, as I've discipled folks like that, I've, you know, we were joking, not joking, but we were using the obvious example of the strip club. Like no man should be doing evangelism in a strip club. If, if there's <laughs> evangelism to be done, it should be done by old, old ladies from a distance. Right. Uh, but in, I would, I would say, here's what I've said in the past. I've said, to people who've been saved out of the drug culture. I, I think you should not go back and go back into those contexts. And at least initially, Jesus has other people on the team uh, who aren't going to be affected by the sights and the smells that, that are going to trigger things in you. And uh, you know, maybe this is a time to trust in team at, at least for, for a couple of years until you've really got your feet under you. Is that good counsel or
1: bad counsel? Am I being too cautious? Again, I just go back to the passage. Matthew invited these people to his home. Right. And, and you know, for us, the addicts that I've dealt with who have all these connections, because we have a local teen challenge for women chapter in our in our community, and we're very active with them. Um, th- th- that community, if you're an addict, like I just find those communities are very close-knit. They have a way of communicating. And, and people have come to me, Pastor, I want to reach them like so much. I, you know, if God saved me, he'll say... And I'm like, listen. Then let's let's do a meal at at our place or at your right. place, but and let's you know invite so them. You're not sending them come. back,
0: right? But, but you're saying let's let's bring them over here,
1: right? Exactly, and because that, yeah. that's what Matthew did. Yeah, Matthew yeah. said to yeah. all of his buddies, "Come to my place." That's and by right. the way, this rabbi who everybody thinks is amazing is my honored guest. Yeah. And that's what freaked out the Pharisees. They didn't like that because right. Jesus should have been at the temple with all the good guys, right? And, and, but I don't know how we culturally jumped the Rubicon to make it into bars and strip yeah. clubs and everything else. This was in a guy's house.
0: Yeah, that comes yeah. in at the level of pastoral application, right? That's, that's, yeah. These are the questions people ask. I think we've answered them all. I think that's really wise, sober counsel, uh, unless I've missed something. Uh, let, me, let me zero in on something else uh, in that same section of text, in that same column that we were dealing with. Uh, this is not so much controversial as um, ignored. Um, it's outrageous. It's, it almost sounds like one of those verses that's aspirational as opposed to uh, something that, that we're, we're to be taking seriously on a day-to-day basis. In Luke 6, 27 to 31, Jesus says this, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them." So according to this passage, Christians are supposed to love their enemies. They're supposed to pray for those who are abusing them. Uh, They're supposed to allow themselves to be wrong. They're supposed to basically absorb abuse. Uh, They're not called upon to fight for their rights. Uh, They are to treat others the way they would want to be treated. And yet, to state the obvious, we almost never do this. Uh, Christians, it seems, anyway, are constantly fighting for their rights, particularly, it, it, it seems, nowadays, and vilifying not just their enemies, but also their friends and their closest allies if there's not 100% agreement on everything. So how important is the behavior side of Christianity? Is, is it? Can you put it in the back seat when doctrine's on the line or you feel the doctrine's on the line? How does this all work out in practice? Brother Mark, I'll, I'll throw that to you, but I'd, I'd like to hear from the whole panel on this one because I, I think it's a it's a, a complicated issue
3: yeah so it's interesting because uh you know you're you're drawing it up uh, when you're talking about um behavior and doctrine so i i'm presuming that you're seeing the debates that are going on between christians that are maybe happening online and i think that falls into a little bit of a different I'm, I'm more just just
0: thinking about okay. a general attitude like if if someone what whatever christian or not i guess i'm using them like a how much more argument if we're supposed to be this way towards our enemies. Sometimes we don't right. even act this way towards our friends.
3: Right. So that's, yeah. that's really that's the, the direction that I'd like to go with this. My son yeah. brought this up in family devotions. My eldest who's in his early twenties said, dad, does that mean, you know, that we shouldn't even defend ourselves? Like if somebody attacks us and, you know, it was a great 20 minute conversation after all the other kids had left the table wrestling through this. Um, and, and so I had a good opportunity to kind of work through this because it, it, as, as Western people, North American people, you know, we are quick to get to our rights and quick to think, I, I ought to, don't tread on me. I, you know, I come right. poking those kids. And, and I, I really believe what Jesus is saying to us is, is yeah, uh, don't, you know, you don't need to concern yourself with defending yourself. And that does mean you're going to suffer and people are going to treat you sometimes like a doormat. Uh, It doesn't necessarily mean you continue to go back and receive that over and over again. I mean, Paul leaves certain cities after he gets the tar beat out of them. But you notice, you know, Paul doesn't come back with Silas and Timothy and a bunch of baseball bats and, and give them what for. You know, consistently what we see in Jesus, what we see in Paul, is we see a person who's willing to suffer abuse for the sake of the gospel. In Peter, we see a guy who cuts off somebody's ear. Um, in the midst of a garden and Jesus rebukes him for it. Um, so that's one thing I'd say is, is when it comes to my own rights, uh, as I mature, especially in, 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 my faith, it is learning how to suffer for Christ and say, this is part of the package and I don't need to defend myself, but I will say one other thing about this um, is uh, I did one time uh, provoke a fight with five drunk guys and, um, but it wasn't to defend myself. It was to defend a mentally handicapped guy that they were openly ridiculing to the point that this guy broke down in tears. And I sat there for a minute and I thought, you know, what is the Christian thing to do here? Um, Especially given the fact that there's five of those guys and just one of me. And, and the conclusion I came to is, uh, you know, defend the defenseless. And so at that point I, I stood up and said, Hey, you guys, why don't you pick on somebody your own size and offered myself up. Um, And uh, I'll, I'll just tantalize you because you, <laughs> you probably want to know how it ends. Uh But, uh well, I'll tell you how it ends. My, my very rough and tumble neighbor, two doors down, uh, came bursting out his front door with a baseball bat seconds later and said, I'm coming too. And the guys all said, okay, we're ready to <laughs> repent. You know, so no <laughs> they <fight happened. laughs> are ready to repent. <laughs> this is a great story. Uh, I live in a rough neighborhood, you know, but, but, uh, you know, so there's a difference between standing up for my own rights and standing up for the rights of somebody else. But when it comes to my own rights, I think over and over again, Jesus, Paul, the apostles show us, uh, this is something I laid down for the sake of the gospel.
2: Yeah, that's good.
0: Anyone else want to chime in on that?
2: I think it's useful to talk about the cross. Um, Jesus went to the cross And accepted all the evil, all the sin, all the wrath, all the mocking, all of that. And insofar as he suffered as the just one, he swallowed up all that evil in himself. First Peter, Peter says he did this, obviously the atonement a lot, but but he also did this as an example. He committed, this is first Peter 2.22 after that verse. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued in trust himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I, I, there's a place for I'm not a pacifist. There's a place for self-defense, but there is something instructive in the cross that makes sense of the Sermon on the Mount or the whatever the Sermon on the Plain this one is probably right nonetheless the point is there's something so instructive that we are to be like Christ in this way there is a real sense in which we swallow up evil in our life <laughs> doesn't mean you don't defend the weak i'm not saying that that's not my point mm. but this is also another aspect of what it means to be a christian and i i think we miss the cross i mean there's a um, Martin Luther distinguishes the theology of the cross and the theology of glory. Theology of glory says everything's going to be awesome when you're part of a team, you know, that Lego song, um, everything's great. You're going to have uh, your best life. Now you're going to be, you're gonna have riches. You're going to have everything you want. You'll be a Bishop who rules over a, a state in, in Holy Roman empire. But the theology of the cross is much different. It's suffering. It's poorness, it's weakness. But in that weakness, Christ is made strong. So I, I'm actually very against uh, this idea that we need to be the, the fighting front on the fighting frontier of our, our rights anywhere we are. I think we need to be careful that that's not how we're characterized because that's the theology of glory. The Reformation completely rejected that theology. Doesn't mean you don't do any kind of responsible civic things. That's not my point. Don't misread me. I'm just saying your life should be characterized as Christ's life was. It's a meek lamb,
1: and I think that's well, the tension that yeah, what Mark on. was talking yeah. about in our Western culture. Yeah. Like because we are in a culture that says if you want a home and somebody breaks into it, that's against the law. So Good. that's, I, I think it's important. We're not this. We're not, pacifists. We're not yeah. you know, so if somebody breaks into my house and goes to attack my wife, I'm going to protect my wife. You, you, you know, now I'm not going to overdo it. I don't think that because he attacked her, I have the right to kill him, you, yeah. you know, that type of thing. But if, if they come to confiscate my house, because I'm a Christian and the government sanctions, the fact that people can come and confiscate my home and cause us to be homeless. I'm not going to bear up arms and drive them away. I'm going to take my wife and go humbly and say, Lord, protect us, feed us, you know, take care of us. Um, One of my favorites is John Bunyan. And I, you know, we love Pilgrim's Progress, but people don't, you'd be well worth reading about the guy's life when he spent time in prison and he writes and documents about watching through the prison gate, the window, his daughter selling little trinkets and flowers at the prison gates so her and her mother could eat and he's in prison and he just will not recant over communion by the way. Um, But it's just one of those things. So I, I think that our Western culture, we struggle. We're not saying a guy breaks in and can rape my wife and a good Christian doesn't. And that's not what Jesus is saying here, but he is saying for the cross, you lay it down.
0: Yeah. So these are good, some good, uh, I don't want to say exceptions, but these are some good framings. Um, I want to be careful that we don't frame this so well uh, that that we rot, we pull its teeth, as it were. This this is right. this is an outrageous passage, right? And I agree with all of what everything has just been said. I wish, you know, yeah. I, I could I could have said it all. This doesn't mean you can't defend your wife. This doesn't mean you can't defend uh, a mentally handicapped person, um, et, et cetera. Totally, one hundred percent agree. But it it does mean something. Uh, and and I th- it's what it means, I think, is pretty radical. It means that basically we're to live so certain of our future with Christ that there's basically nothing anyone can do to us that needs to be defended in, in this world. Now, where it gets complicated is like we see the Apostle Paul occasionally defending his rights, it appears on a strategic basis, right? I think most obviously of Acts 16, where he kind of wants the authorities to be, I don't want to use the term shamed, but embarrassed, or at least he wants them, uh, you know, to realize they're acting a little beyond their authority so that the church in Philippi can can keep operating. So he pulls right. his, I'm a Roman citizen card here. What are you doing? And then other times he doesn't, you know, and he just takes it and goes on. So you know, when, when do we fight for our our legal rights? Because I think this is going to be a big conversation for Christians in the next decade. Like the reality is we made the laws because we ran the show 100 years ago. Now we're in in Canada anyway, we're an insignificant minority. Nobody cares what we think. So some of the laws are being rewritten and they're being rewritten in a way that presses on us. How much fighting should we do about our rights? I'm just, and I'm asking this, I'm not leading. I'm, I'm curious. I want to help people who are listening.
3: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I I, I think I would, Say this is important for a Christian to know that we're not saying, or I'm not saying, um, that you never stand up and say that's wrong, and I'm not going to do it. But when you do that, you understand. Um, in, in making my stand, I'm not trying to bloody the nose of the government. I'm saying you're wrong, and I I refuse. And if you want to bloody my nose, so be it. You know, I, this is this is the um, you know the 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 uh the I can't think of the word non-uh combative sort of I, I think it's it's right. There's times and it's interesting you you mentioned Paul in Acts 16. It's interesting when does he mention hey I'm a Roman citizen? Not before they beat yeah, him that's true. but afterwards. <laughs> oh by the way, uh just so you know I am a Roman citizen and then they all go, whoa, we're in serious trouble here. Mm-hmm. You know, um I, I think it's consistently at, as you mature to, to be like Christ, we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. As you mature to be like Christ, you should find that there is less and less desire to fight for your rights and more and more desire that that the Lord Jesus should shine through me. And sometimes that means that people walk all over me and I say, okay.
2: It's, it's I, worth noting too, that in Acts and in Jesus's case, and even in Revelation, like Revelation 12, this is, you're being arrested. You're being persecuted. It's not, it's you're, you're not asking for this per se, but what you're doing is, is you're accepting that the evil has come and to defeat that evil, you actually accept it and absorb it. And then you get a crown. It's not saying I'm looking to go like run into the army and punch someone in the face. Yeah. So I get killed. Like that's just, this is not the point. Yeah.
0: Not, this isn't about provoking confrontation no, this is, so that we can stack yeah. up points in heaven. Right.
1: And, and, and go a step further because I love what Matt Chandler said about Paul. He said, Paul must have been the most annoying guy because if, you know, if he did well, he praised God and he preached. If you stoned him to death, he raised from the dead and he went back in and started preaching. If you put him in jail, he had a prayer meeting and he and he continued to, you know, but he was always respectful. He always was engaging. He didn't complain. You know, Mark, you mentioned the whole Philippians 4, which I didn't get to in regards to that, that Job passage, because we have that coffee cup mug in, you know, Philippians four thirteen. I can do all things through Christ. But that comes at the end of that whole preamble of I've learned how to do without. I've learned how to be blessed. I've learned how to, I've learned in whatever state I am there with to be content. Therefore I can do all things through Christ. So in a modern thing with even in Canada, with all the stuff that's going on, I haven't don't have a problem with people as Canadian citizens saying, I don't agree with my government, but if you're going to do it to the point where it's going to cause, you know, persecution, prosecution, um, you still have this attitude of respect and humility and, and a, and a willingness, a graciousness. I got one of my interns just before I hopped on here. He was practicing preaching because he's preaching on, on Sunday, uh, Romans 12. And the whole idea of vengeance is yeah. mine, saith the Lord, don't see and, and the idea that they're heaping coals of fire and he was struggling through what does this mean? And the, and the idea we were helping him that, that Paul is saying, when you do this and you suffer wrongfully. That when you do that, it actually opens the door for God to convict those who are inflicting this suffering on you wrongfully. Yeah. And I think this is what Jesus is saying. When you act like me, when you reflect me, even when, and why it quoted it, Peter himself said, if you're going to suffer, make sure you suffer not wrongfully. Like, or, you know, don't have them have a reason to make you suffer. Make sure they've literally got no reason to do this except hate for the gospel. Yeah. Because in so doing, and yet even still, he says, but still be ready with gentleness and meekness to give an answer.
0: That's good. Well, we could talk about this for hours and 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 uh, you know, it's 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 going to be a big conversation in the next decade in the church. for the simple reason that we've never had any enemies before. I don't think as a group, we may have had personal enemies. But I don't think in the culture we had a lot of uh, organized uh, enemies against the movement. Uh, And all of a sudden we do. And, and so we, we have to kind of brush up on our enemy interaction protocols um, because we, we do have a very unusual way and we can't just react out of our instinctive modern Western North American, you know, cultural routines. Uh, We have, we have a different approach commended in scripture. All right. uh, Time we have left. uh, Let's let's, I want to hit this last column because there's some, some really important things in it. Um, First Corinthians seven is a long chapter uh, and it deals with a lot of hot button issues. Um, we, we, could talk for, for days and days. Um, it's it, Paul's answering a question they had written to him. They were obviously very impressed with celibacy and you can get that right. Cause John the Baptist was a celibate guy. Jesus was a celibate guy. And then uh, the apostle Paul was a celibate guy, whether he'd been married before or not, we don't know. But uh, at the time they knew him, he was a celibate guy. And so, They were sort of wondering, is celibacy the inside track uh, to spiritual glory? And Paul writes back and says, no, no, no. General rule is every man should have his own wife, every wife her own husband, and everybody should be generous to one another in the context of marriage with respect to sexuality. Uh, So it kind of covers that basis, gets in a little bit to mixed marriage. What if I'm married to somebody who's not a believer? Uh, however, there is this passage that I remember as an early Bible reader kind of stumbling on going, what in the world is going on here, uh, later in, in the chapter where Paul is talking about people who are engaged and he, he's saying, you know, should you go through with this and, 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 and get married or, or not. And he's kind of of two minds about it. He says, well, it's not sin. If you do might be better though, if you don't, then he says, verses 29 to 31, this is what I mean. He's got to unpack that. Uh, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Those who buy as if they had no goods. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of the world is passing away. What in the world does that mean? Did, did the Apostle Paul think that that the second coming was going to be next week or next month from, from his perspective? And that therefore there was no point in getting married? Um is that what he meant? And if he meant something else, how do we apply this in the modern day? Why do you want to give us a, a start on that?
2: Yeah. I'll just give very, like two very brief principles and uh, I'll yep. let you, I'm sure you've had a deal of this more in ministry than I've ever had. So I'll let you take care of that. First of all, Paul recognizes that the resurrection, that the kingdom of God is breaking into this world and that changes things. Yeah, We're already not yet in this kind of new way of living. Now, I don't think this destroys nature. He's not saying marriage is bad or anything like that. In fact, in other places in scripture, Ephesians five and so on, he completely affirms it. So I think at, at one, at one level, what he's saying is, look, there's, there's this new reality of the kingdom of God. And that changes our, our priorities. But on the other side, I don't think that means it destroys nature. There's very many things he talks about in terms of uh, treating your children, your wife, your family. Well, earlier in the chapter, he says, yeah. you know, general rule is everybody get married. But I do think there's something to, there's some sort of urgency to mission yeah. and the urgency is the kingdom is breaking in. I don't think he, he doesn't know when Jesus will return. It doesn't indicate that he has a, a date in mind, but I think all of us are supposed to live with some sort of gospel urgency to realize that the Lord could return at any time, like a thief in the night. Okay, right, That's a basic comment, but you guys can fill in the, uh, all the different pieces.
0: Sure. Well, do you, and did you want to say anything about the present form of the world is passing away? Do you, are you saying that just means that the, the the new kingdom is breaking in Angaken? It's it's here and not here. It's at hand, that kind of thing?
2: I think so. Yeah, it's the, the old yeah. world. I mean, the prince of the power of the air kind of rules this world, right. but the kingdom's in breaking. Eventually, that is fully uh, brought in in Revelation 21, 22, the new heavens and new earth. But there's an already aspect to it. Okay. It's passing away. That's good. So if you read
0: five commentaries on this, you'll probably get three going one way and two going another, uh, if they're evangelical commentaries. Liberal ones will, will just say, yeah, Paul thought Jesus was returning in his lifetime, and he was wrong. Um, evangelicals will say, well, there's there's two ways to understand that. One is the way Wyatt's just said. The other is to say that Paul was really talking about the collapse of the current order, like the, the Roman Amen. Empire, that that he saw the uh, he remembered Jesus talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the Olivet Discourse as a, a super intense birth pang, as it were, the likes of which we, we won't see again and, until the very, very, very end. And so, you know, basically the world is, is on fire right now. And if you can hold off on these sorts of decisions, that would be great. That's how Leon Morris, for example, takes it. He says, he summarizes, he says, when high seas are raging, it is no time for changing ships. Uh, so he says this is just moment, uh, uh, temporal advice where Paul is just saying, hey, when the whole world's falling apart, maybe don't get married. Uh, but then also you'll find an equal number of commentators taking it as, as Wyatt's taking it, that the, as the kingdom is coming in, the shift has
3: to be towards urgency.
0: Where do you guys fall out on this?
3: Um, you know, I, I, I see I'm closer to uh, probably Leon Morris on this. Um, because he doesn't just talk about wives here. He talks about uh, um, those who have goods as if they did not have goods, those who mourn as if they were not mourning, those who rejoice as if they're not rejoicing. And there are many other passages in the whole Council of Scripture that would give us different counsel on that. So it seems to me that Paul is maybe giving some specific counsel to the Corinthians for a situation that's maybe existing there that's temporal um, and saying, hey, right now, this is not the time for this. Um, but those times may come. Yep. Stephen, how about you?
1: Yeah, I, I guess I'm going to be the UN on this one. And I kind of see both sides of this. Uh, I, I think it could be <laughs> both end That's and not either end. or, yeah. um, in the sense of, and again, I take this from my own missions trips, like having been to like Russia, um, where they've gone through times of intense persecution. And it was amazing because being there, there were a, almost like a generation of a lot of single people mm. because they knew the cost and they were sold out to making sure they kept their focus. So I think there's a principle here as maybe I would go more principle. And yet at the same time, I also think with with Wyatt and the idea of urgency, and I don't think we need to always be apologizing for these, like you said earlier about this passage in Luke, um, I don't think it's wrong for us in our churches to say, listen, if God's called you to be married, great. But has God called you to this? And and you should prayerfully consider both because there is this potential urgency and we can almost see it coming into our lives. So I, I don't think it's wrong for us to say, listen, God ordained marriage. He created it. Men and women should seek it if you've got. But if, if a guy comes to me and says, I feel God's calling me to ministry and he's single, I don't then go, listen, now you need to do me a favor. You need to go out and find a wife. Yeah you know, the conversation for me is more, okay, now you need to pray through what kind of calling does this look like? But if we find ourselves in Canada, the way our, our brothers and sisters in Russia did a generation ago and may, and may find themselves in again, we may find that we find it expedient to have more single people than married people.
0: Yeah. Okay, good. Well, that's very helpful. Uh, I just remember as a first time Bible reader or early Bible reader stumbling over that and wondering what in the world is going on there. So that's, that's a couple of helpful takes on that. Uh, Just a couple minutes left, but let's see if we can hit this one. First Corinthians nine and eight. uh, The the, the verse that really jumped out at me was in first Corinthians nine, but he begins the argument at eight. It's really eight, nine, and 10 are all one argument. Paul's talking about rights. So he's saying, you know, as an apostle, I got all these rights, but he says, (laughs) I, you know, I could take them or leave them. And, and he says, and if it's more helpful for the progress of the gospel, then I leave them. He says, so I can be this way. And in one circumstance, I can be that. And another, I certainly am not walking around insisting on my rights and privileges. That's for sure. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, for though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. And then earlier in a in the sort of specific conversation that launched uh, this whole approach, he says, therefore, this is 1 Corinthians eight thirteen. if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So he's saying, listen, I understand better than everybody that the, that the kosher diet laws are not in place. I understand better than anybody that there's no demonic reality, you know, behind whatever's going on in the marketplace here, okay? I, I, I am of mature New Testament faith, and yet... I'll eat whatever you want me to eat if it means that I can talk to you about Jesus. And if it, if it means I can advance, uh, in, in my gospel work, my discipling work, that's, that's his whole approach. So again, I guess it brings us back to what we started touching on at the end of the conversation about Luke, uh, Luke six, where we were talking about, uh, you know, being willing to absorb how concerned should we be for our rights and liberties as, as Christians, how forefront should, should that be in our minds, mm. Brother Stephen, do you want to give us a minute on that? Just again, yeah. pastoral wisdom for the Bible reader.
1: Now, for me, I was reading this, and I, again, think this is more internal than external. Yeah. I think Paul is doing this. So I think this is him saying, look, I am free to do things, but for the sake of love for my fellow Christian and the watching world, yeah. who, you know, Jesus said a new commandment I leave with you, how you love one another proves that you're my disciples, right? So let me give you a couple of real examples. When, when I took on my first ministry in PEI, the church there didn't. Uh, allow the pastor to go to movies and my kids were just becoming teenagers like we're like 12 13 and i remember my boys coming to me going Deb, but now my boys were allowed to go i wasn't allowed to go (laughs) okay i didn't say they were consistent in their application it's just what it was (laughs) but i had agreed with the church when they brought me on that i would observe that that prohibition Um, Because at the time I felt the church, that's where their maturity level was. And I remember telling my boys, guys, listen, there is no thou shalt not go to movies in the Bible and your father is free to go. But you need to realize because I'm free to go, I'm free not to go. And so my reason for not going is because I love this church and I don't think they've been taught well. And it's your dad's responsibility now to teach them and, and shape them. And and I think Paul gives us this example. Paul's the guy that's confronting Peter to the face going, no, listen, man, in Galatians, I'm going to eat with Gentiles and you, you need to get your act together and stop doing this stuff. But then he goes in Acts and when he goes and brings money and they say, listen, you need to go to the temple, take a Nazarite vow, pay for these other yeah. guys. He yeah. does it. So he shows us. But I think Paul draws the line in this whole freedom and exercise within the church community. Yeah. If someone says to me, You shouldn't go to movies. And I know this is not a maturity issue. This is just a self-righteousness issue. Yeah, It's a legalism issue. I I might say in my heart, I would deliberately go to a movie just to get this guy hired up and go, you, we need to deal with this. Yeah. So I think those are my three aspects of that. That's
0: that's really good counsel. Anyone want to add to that? No, I don't see a lot of people wanting to add to that, <laughs> lest, <laughs> lest we muddy the waters that Stephen has. I keep waiting has, for the cons, the cons, the co- I've got the some oh. cons, Steve.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I do.
0: I, I do think again. There's there's just this this idea that that arguing for our rights, arguing for our liberties, is just somehow not appropriate for Christians. It, it doesn't. It's, it's not congruent with the picture of mature Christian character that we get. Um, in essence, we want to have mature views on everything, but we also want to hold on to, you know, uh, be, be quite flexible in what we're, we're willing to do, uh, so as to reach many. And so as to avoid offending the weaker brother, I think that's the general principle. Why were you going to hop in?
2: Well, just maybe something kind of simple to say, look, the role of government law, this kind of stuff is peace and order. Right. So the church's mission can flourish. So I think insofar as maybe Paul would use his Roman citizenship, it's. For the sake of peace, order, so he's not stoned by a crowd, <laughs> continue his mission. Right, it's really mission-minded in a lot of ways. So I don't think it's wrong to necessarily to use your rights as a citizen of Canada, but to make that the main thing, in contrasting contra to the gospel. Well, that's right. that's not helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah, and and maybe I didn't make that clear, Stephen. You're absolutely right. I was thinking more internally in terms of how we move missionally within the church on this one, as opposed to to external laws. But but I suppose the attitude is is the same. Just willing to absorb a whole bunch of things, inconvenience, offense, et cetera, all for the sake of the gospel. Also, as to keep our eye on the mission. Also, as to maintain our focus. Also, as to maintain our focus and uh, and our testimony. That is, uh, I, I think that's something that just needs to be said because we're not conditioned for that kind of attitude by the culture. You know, the culture we live in. A you know, protect your rights. Use your maximum amount of permission. You see the Apostle Paul basically saying, "I'll use the minimum uh, you know of my permission.'ll I'll forego a great many privileges if it if it extends my gospel reach a little further, uh, which mm-hmm. I think obviously is uh, is the attitude commended in Scripture. We covered a lot of ground. Uh, We cover a lot of ground every week. Uh, That's the nature of the RMM Bible reading plan. I trust that it continues to be a blessing to you. That is all the time that we have for this week. And that is all the time that we have for this program, Uh, for now, anyway. We brought going deeper out of mothballs, uh, basically, because we thought it would be helpful while churches were back under the severe lockdowns. Most of us are coming out now. Uh, We're just getting started. I know tomorrow night I've got an in person group that hopefully we'll be able to pull off. Uh, and I know everyone else is, is starting to dip their toe back into those waters. So we will put this back into storage and uh, bring it out if, if necessary in the future. Uh, Brother Mark, uh, before we sign off, could we get you to pray for us and get, get you to pray for our listeners?
3: Sure. Let's pray. Heavenly father, we, we are so grateful for your word, Lord, and for the promise that your Holy spirit has been given to us as a teacher who will lead us into all truth Lord, we give you thanks that you have gifted uh, pastors and teachers to your church. And Lord, for the time that we have had here, the four of us, to just uh, encourage one another and challenge one another and and, and and look to get nourishment from your word, Lord, I pray for all those who will listen or view this, uh, Lord, that they might be helped to know you better and to love you more, Father, that they might be helped to put the gospel first And Lord, even in places where they may be caused to suffer, in places where they may have their rights trampled on, uh, Lord, that they would uh, look to Jesus and, uh, Lord, take their cue from him and know, Lord, that the day is coming when we will see you face to face, when you will wipe away the tears from our eyes and there will be no more suffering or sickness or pain or death. And until then, Lord, help us to be faithful. Lord, this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. amen, 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 amen. Amen. Well, thanks for joining
0: us, panel. And uh, thank you, friends who are listening in. Uh, if you're interested in further Bible teaching, you can find that over at the End of the Word website at ca. You can also pick up the End of the Word app. We've worked our way verse by verse and chapter by chapter through uh, just over 400 chapters of the Bible. We're still picking away at that. We've got a new series coming out on Leviticus, uh, which uh, has been... an fascinating, eye-opening, soul-stretching experience for me putting it together. I'm excited to share it with you. You'll be able to find the apps wherever it is you buy or download your smartphone apps. But until we meet again in some form or fashion, take care and God bless.